Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, Welcome to Space Junk. My name is Annie Hanmer and I study the history, philosophy and sociology of science at the University of Sydney, Australia. To celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing, I caught up with Dylan O'Donnell, a phenomenal amateur astronomer and astrophotographer in his hometown of Byron Bay. We had a brilliant chat about astronomy, the state of science in Australia, the power of space to inspire, and why we're drawn to conspiracy theories. Dylan is also an exceptionally talented musician, and after a tour of his backyard observatory, and after I had sufficiently embarrassed myself by revealing my mediocre piano skills, Dylan treated me to a rendition of his original song, Brand New Phone. Dylan has agreed to let me begin and end this podcast with this love song to technology. Before we begin, I'd also like to thank the listeners who have reached out to me over the last few months. Thanks in particular to Rutwick from the Netherlands, Skylar from London, Hugh from Sydney, and Gerard from Canberra. I have no idea how you found the podcast, considering my advertising is minimal to say the least, but I'm thrilled that you did. And finally, because I'm given to understand that such things are important, I should say that all opinions expressed by me in this and all other such podcasts are my own and do not represent the views of any organisation with which I am associated. Enjoy the podcast. So I'm here in beautiful Byron Bay speaking with Dylan O'Donnell, who is an amateur astronomer, 
And um, what else do you do, Dylan? Uh, I run a Google uh, partner company, actually. So All right. I'm, a, I'm an IT guy. I have my master's in information technology, but um, most people know me nowadays for my astrophotography. And tell me about that. What, what do you do? Uh, you know, it's funny. I'm just a guy that takes photos of space. And there are a lot of us um, who take photos of space. I'm just one of the lucky ones who, um, who went viral once. I went viral once with a picture of the International Space Station, and that went around the world. And in, and I tried to keep that momentum up. So I've slowly been building my profile as a presenter on uh, my YouTube show, Star Stuff. Uh, I also run an event here in Byron Bay called Star Stuff, which is a festival of the cosmos where we have lots of scientists and academics come and talk about space. And generally, I'm just a big space tourist and space nerd, really. <laughs> yeah, I had a look at your YouTube channel, which I love, um, <laughs> and you've got some amazing videos for anyone who's interested in taking photos of space or doing astronomy and, and um, a lot of kind of handy hints and things. Mm. And I also saw a video from your Star Stuff conference from, was it last year or earlier yes. this year? Last year? Last year. So tell me how that started. Is this something that you created? <laughs> Uh, you know, it started because I've been banging on about this to the mayor of uh, Byron Bay, Simon Richardson, and talking about the uh, utility of space tourism or space tourism as a potential alternative to music tourism and other forms that are quite high impact on an area. Um, space tourism is really this highly valuable thing because people are coming into your town, they're looking for a dark sky. Um, and they're normally pretty well-to-do educated people. Um, there's a huge thirst for science as entertainment in this country. That's, uh, I don't think it's being um, really provided uh, as well as it could be. And so I, I pitched this idea to the mayor and he, um, he must have embedded it somewhere in his brain because he came to a tourism symposium a little while later and this got brought up and he brought up my example and my suggestion and then Destination Byron and um, the Elements of Byron Resort came to me and said, would you like to put on a festival and uh, prove this to us? Show us that you can do this. We'll give you the venue and you do what you want with it and you organise your own event. Uh, so I put together the event and we brought Dr. Carl, uh, who I think you've met as well. <laughs> yes, yeah, I was on Dr. Carl's podcast yeah. not too long ago. So Dr. Carl was the headliner for the event and... Um, but we also had Dr. Alan Duffy from Swinburne, and we had Dr. David Malin, we had um, Dr. Katie Mack, Astro Katie. Uh, it was just a, an amazing event, and we sold out in the first year. So I, I was able to show Byron as a region that this is a legitimate form of tourism, uh, that it pays for itself. Uh, the resort was booked out in the middle of winter. So I'm really happy about that, and I've met some amazing people doing the Star Stuff Festival and it's going to be on again next year so i'm just currently putting things together and then hopefully in a few months we'll be able to release the date and the information sounds incredible <laughs> mentioned this idea of low impact tourism so i guess when you have a big music festival and people mm. come in from sydney or so on they um you know, they'll tend to destroy the field where the festival is or they'll exactly. be camping and causing trouble or whatever the case is i mean that's just natural when you have people mm. descending on a place but do you think also there's an element of people who are interested in space maybe being a, you know aware of their surroundings and less likely to damage things or something like that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the example that comes to mind is I was at the uh, World 
Space, uh, sorry, the World Science Festival in Brisbane, mm. uh, internationally renowned festival. Uh, I I got to speak there, which was wonderful. But what struck me was that the next day after the this amazing weekend of science, in the newspapers around Australia, there was maybe maybe two mainstream news articles about it. But the cricket had maybe a hundred articles written about it. And when that happened on the same weekend, and when I looked at the the images and the video of the cricket match, there were maybe, the stands were empty. Mm. But there was no one at the cricket match. And yet this festival, which had a hundred thousand punters from around Brisbane and around Australia come through for the weekend, uh, didn't even get a mention in mainstream media. And I think there is this big... Uh, this big thirst for science as entertainment. And I do think that the sorts of people it attracts are unreally nice people. Historically, science has been quite inaccessible if you didn't go to university mm. or you don't have a degree or you're not a white man or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. But these days, through citizen science projects, people can really get involved. I mean, I'm um, involved in a few projects through a site called Zooniverse. Mm-hmm where I categorize photographs of Mars or photographs of the moon or things like that. And through that crowdsourcing process, scientists can get a lot of data sorted through that previously, Mm. like they would have had to sit there and do. Um, It's a kind of low cost way of people helping to do scientific research in a really accessible way. Yeah, and it's not just a gimmick either. Um, no. Zooniverse has led to published papers and actual research and discovery as well. So mm. it's fantastic. And I do think that there is a kind of democratisation of science now, um, uh, especially I say this a lot with astronomy, is that you, you can't just throw on a stethoscope and call yourself a doctor, but you can get a telescope and call yourself an astronomer. Anyone with a backyard with the access to the night sky and a telescope can go out and actually make discoveries. And the amateur astronomy community do make those sorts of discoveries that lead to published results. So, um, yeah, I do think uh, astronomy especially has this wonderful way of being able to connect on a really visceral level to people uh, who aren't necessarily um, rich or aren't necessarily academic. Um, So, yeah, I think it is... I think, I think it's a great thing for the, the general public and the wider community. Now, I wanted to talk to you a bit because I heard that you got in some trouble recently <laughs> with the government. I heard yeah. that you made yourself a T-shirt with the logo of the Australian Space Agency on it and posted this to Twitter, maybe, mm. yeah. um, and that you received some fairly... Uh, well, you received a bit of a crackdown I from the Space Agency. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, tell um, us about it. The Australian Space Agency is so cool. They, this is new for us here as Australians to actually have our own space agency. And I've been following their progress for a while. And Dr. Megan Clark was appointed the head of it, which is fantastic. And I got to meet her um, at a, uh, at a, it was like a think tank so that we could all get together and talk about what the agency was going to be like, what it should be doing for industry. It was an industry sort of roundtable. And I pitched in talking about tourism and things like that. And so I got to meet them and and be part of that before it was actually incorporated. But then eventually um, it came to the point where it was incorporated and they released their logo and their branding. And as soon as the logo and the branding came came out, I went and 
printed that on a t-shirt because I wanted my own Australian Space Agency t-shirt. As you do, yep. <laughs> yeah, I've already got a NASA shirt and a NISA shirt and I've even got a SpaceX shirt. So I, I wanted an Australian Space Agency shirt. So I got that printed off and, um, and of course, uh, I, I took a selfie of myself and threw it on Twitter and <laughs> straight away the Australian Space Agency sort of sent me this little curt tweet saying, uh, you do know you don't have the rights to distribute or sell any of those. And so I had to promise them that I wasn't going to um, make any money off my Australian Space Agency t-shirt. But they're very, they're very well-natured people there and um, I mm. think they got the joke. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Um, but I've, I'm really interested in what the Space Agency has been doing in Australia because in some ways it's a, a kind of a weird thing to have, to have a Space Agency and in other ways, it's really well overdue. Mm. What do you what do you think about it? What's your sense? So initially, of course, everyone's going to think about astronauts and sending Australians to space, and it really is not about that, at least not now. Um, the first, I mean, the major thing, a major access to space is via data. It's via weather data and satellite data, GPS data, all of that sort of thing. And the the first things we can do for industry is get more access to data for cheaper because we spend million, hundreds of millions of dollars per year accessing the data that we need for agriculture and weather and uh, geographic information systems and things like that. And we, we could get this data way cheaper uh, in the order of tens of millions instead of hundreds of millions yes. simply by interfacing our space agency with other space agencies like ESA. Mm. Uh, already we're seeing changes, uh, for instance, uh, the... ESA uh, tracking station in Western Australia has been uh, controlled by a team from Europe. I think it's a mostly German-led team. But ever since we've had the space agency, agency we've been able to negotiate uh, for the CSIRO to take over and actually manage that site as well. So we're becoming more a part of the global space network rather than just being a piece of dirt where people can chuck their telescopes and uh, radio arrays. <laughs> Tell me how you got involved with space astronomy and astrophotography. Mm -hmm. um, I just walked into a shop and bought a telescope. How long ago was this? <laughs> it was about five years ago now. Okay. And did you have any background in astronomy or had you done a lot of science at school or university? Uh, not terribly because my, my background was IT. Any kind of connection I had to space was just a boyhood fascination with space generally. Um, it really was as simple as me buying a telescope, bringing it home and exploring, just looking at space and going, what's that? And Googling what it was and then trying to find out how to do the next thing and Googling that. And so uh, for the last four or five years, I've been making lots of mistakes and learning. And that's led me to, you know, enroll in an actual astronomy degree and that sort of thing mm -hmm. now. So, um, yeah, just buying a telescope had a huge impact on me. <laughs> Tell me more about this boyhood fascination with space, because you mentioned that as if it's just sort of an offhand thing, but not everyone <laughs> has a childhood fascination with space. What was it for you that really inspired you or drew you in? Uh, well, my dad did give me a tiny telescope and I just put it in the backyard and I, I found stuff just by pointing at bright things. I remember pointing it at a bright thing one night and then looking at it and realising that the bright thing I was looking at through the telescope was Jupiter because I could see the, the great red spot. Uh, but also I was just a generally nerdy kid anyway. So when Voyager went past Neptune, I was 11 years old. And this is before the days of the internet and stuff. So 
I had to get down to the local science museum and be there at 3am in the morning while they beamed back pictures of Neptune. So uh, that was a really kind of, I'll, I'll remember that for the rest of my life. And we're, we're lucky, our generation is lucky that uh, we have been able to see pictures of the planets beamed back to us for the first mm. time. You know, we, we didn't know what Pluto looked like until a few years ago. And, uh, and that was the case for me with Neptune as well. So, yeah, I've always had this fascination with science, but now I'm sort of formalising it, I guess, with the, the Star Stuff show, the Star Stuff event, and, um, and now my degree as well. And the sort of inspiration and hope, I think, in space, because there is so much, as you say, that we're only just beginning to be able to see. And even then, it's just, you know, a couple of images and there's just so much out there to explore that mm. at this stage is untouched, has never been affected by humans. Mm. And I think sometimes the the things we're struggling with on Earth around global warming and climate change and conflict and pollution and, and so on, it can become quite dispiriting mm. if you think about them too much because there's just so many problems that are so big and so wrapped up in all sorts of ethical and moral and practical and economic issues. But when you look into a telescope and you look at a place very far away that humans have never been, you you really feel that optimism again or maybe a, a bit of escapism from the problems yeah, of earth true. do you I feel think, that well there is a perspective that space gives you and the mm. astronauts talk about this when they um, leave the earth and they look back at the earth they have this cosmic perspective um, and it sort of triggers something in them they feel like suddenly they realize that they're not looking back and seeing countries or races they're just seeing themselves as humans from a planet and um, I think you can also have access to that same cosmic perspective if you are in your backyard with a telescope or if you're just an interested uh, audience member who likes to read about science and, and learn about space and that sort of thing. You definitely have access to that cosmic perspective. Uh, whether or not I think it gives you hope is, is probably a personal interpretation. Uh, I find space quite humbling. I look out at the vastness of it and you know Hubble's discovery of the expansion of the universe and just how big the scale of everything is and how um, unknowable or uh, inconceivable it really is and that makes me feel very very unimportant but I, I find that thought quite liberating because it means that it's not just me who's unimportant it means all of this is essentially unimportant and that's a very liberating i find that quite positive and quite optimistic myself it means that all of our problems aren't as uh, aren't as worrisome as we think they are most of the time well i personally find great comfort and hope in a strictly nihilistic view of the world <laughs> yeah. which is probably unusual but i mean the way i look at it is if there's no sort of point to anything and everything's just random chance and there's no meaning behind any of it, then it's up to us to define our own meaning. And that's very freeing and very liberating as well. It's something we can all kind of do for ourselves and for each other. I think that's, that's a powerful thing. I think so. It's like when you're thinking about the meaning of life and someone saying there is no wrong answer to that. <laughs> so we're 50 years since the moon landings mm. i was not alive then um, <laughs> nor were you so i'm really interested to know what it means to you 
that 50 years ago we landed on the moon and mm. as humans took our first steps on a celestial body that was not Earth. Mm. In a way, we also pushed through this great barrier, which is gravity, mm -hmm. and overcame one of the only constants that's been there since the beginning of humanity and the beginning of the planet. Yeah. That's really fascinating to me. But what does it mean to you? What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts 50 years on? I'm in a similar boat to you in, in that I wasn't there when it happened, but it clearly is a big deal because it hasn't happened again since. You know, neither of us have seen um, someone stepping on the moon. We've seen lots of robots go all over the place, um, Mars especially. Uh, but the moon has sort of just been something in our historical mythology, really, because we see all these clippings, we see all these grainy footage of it. We've got the dish, you know, the, the classic movie. Great um, film. Yeah, it, an Australian classic. Um, but it's funny to, to me, it's funny to see how, how much things have changed since then. Uh, America and science was such a great big institution uh, politically and and they achieved so much and now we're at this point where they can't actually get an astronaut to the space station let alone the moon so it's interesting to see um, whether the the latest sort of political round of funding will end up in a new mission and I think there's some impetus that has been given because of this 50 year anniversary uh, which happens on July the 20th. But the moon phase right now uh, above us uh, last night uh, was the the same moon phase where men actually stepped out of the, the lunar module onto the moon. Uh, and NASA planned that so that it would be sort of a, a sunrise, essentially. The moon wouldn't be too hot or too cold um, and it would allow them to, to land uh, in the sea of tranquility and, uh, and step out onto the moon. Um, but I'm seeing, I don't know what your Twitter feed's like at the moment, but this event, this 50-year anniversary has been has just taken over. Mm. Like uh, there's just moon news back to back and it's really wonderful. You know, I, I, I like the moon, but as an as an astrophotographer, the moon is like your enemy. It's kind of, it washes out the sky and it doesn't let me take photos of galaxies and nebula and all the other stuff I want to take photos of. Uh, but I... I do have some classic moon photos, uh, and one of them is being exhibited at the Hudson River Gallery in New York at the moment. So I do have a, a connection with the moon and with the 50th uh, year anniversary, and uh, I, I will continue to take photos of the moon every time it's out, uh, even if it doesn't let me take photos of the rest of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking a lot just in the last 24 hours, actually, about the words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, what that actually means. Was that promise realized? Have we really taken a giant leap as mankind since then? You know, that's a, that's a very good question. I, I, I like to think, perhaps optimistically or perhaps too optimistically, that we do live in a good point in time. We are living at a time that's getting more peaceful overall. Even though watching the day-to-day -day news, we don't feel like it sometimes. Um, yeah, our grandparents lived through world wars and they saw indiscriminate killing, whereas these days we turn on the news and um, the killing is not as indiscriminate. We get upset when a Scud missile has collateral damage. There aren't as many deaths at the hands of other people 
today than there were in our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation. So I think we are taking strides uh, globally, uh, whether uh, that's happening because of politics or because of science or because of, because of medicine, uh, I'm not sure. But I do have a kind of optimism for the future of mankind, yeah. And I do think that there is, a, there is something that struck the core of human consciousness when those footsteps were planted on the moon that gives you that sense of inspiration and hope as a species that we can do something like that. Uh, when I, I, I know that us humans are animals, Ultimately, we're all animals. We all share this earth with other animals. Uh, but there are a few strange things that separate us from the other animals. And one of those things is that we don't know of another animal on this earth who has consciously left the earth and gone somewhere else. As far as I know, we're the only ones who have done that. True. So speaking of light pollution, one of the videos I really liked on your YouTube channel was about the Starlink satellites that went up. Could you tell me a bit about what led you to make that video? Sure. And then also, what is it that's concerning about the growing number of satellites for mm. you in general? So there was this launch about a month ago, and we all watched this launch go up, and we watched this strange image come back from, from the ground, actually. It was an amateur astronomer who was pointing his camera up, and he saw these this trail of bright lights. Now, this was the Starlink or the beginning of the Starlink satellite constellation that Elon Musk has been launching. And we saw it, they're in the sky. They look like a, a row of about 60 stars. Just It was like a train of stars going through space. And it really concerned me straight away. I was shocked because as an astronomer, as an astrophotographer, you see satellites going through your images. As you take these long exposures, you end up with trails through your images. They are actually quite damaging to the image and you end up throwing away those, those images and trying to stack them clean. Um, and sure enough, within a day or so, uh, those concerns had become quite a big concern in the Twitter community. And my feed was just inundated with angry astronomers uh, going, you know, tweeting at Elon and, and saying, what is going on with this um, constellation? Because that was the first 60, but there are going to be 12,000 in this constellation alone. And it seems to be, it seemed to me from what Elon was tweeting that this was an afterthought. He hadn't even really thought about the impact. He, he was just doing what was best for this network and for the shareholders of that network. Um, and the astronomy community was very, very annoyed. And it's not just backyarders like me trying to make pretty pictures of galaxies and things like that. It's um, professional observatories um, like the LSST, and they're going to lose a lot of data because as these satellites streak through their images, they leave huge uh, trails, which are just going to render those images useless, for, especially in terms of discovery and data collection. Mm. So it is, a, is, a, is of huge concern. Uh, not only the network itself, but that Elon hadn't really even factored those concerns before he launched the satellites. Mm. Uh, as far as I know, um, uh, maybe a half a dozen of those satellites are dead already, um, and they will naturally deorbit, so they'll come back through the atmosphere and burn up. Uh, so that that's one concern, what it's going to do for um, astronomy. But then there's the other concern of what it's going to do for the um, launch windows. Yeah, if, if you look up in the sky and at any given time there's a dozen satellites flying overhead, uh, that's going to make the launch windows for any space mission smaller and 
we're only talking about one constellation today. Uh, there's going to be many other countries who will build their own satellite constellations. This has an impact for space junk in the long term. So it's a huge concern. But one thing I have to say is I put out this, um, I put out this video, um, which was creatively titled the Starlink SHIT show. Uh, <laughs> you can plink that out. If no, you no, to. it's fine. We swear <laughs> frequently in my podcast. Okay, right. um, I can put a warning up front so you can, you can say the word shit. Right, That's okay. fine. We've had worse. <laughs> right. So I'd, I'd put up this video called um, the Starlink shit show. And within 48 hours, it was by my most viewed videos by far. And it was, uh, I was being inundated with Elon Musk fanboys who were leaving comments and defending the network and completely dismissing my concerns and other astronomers' concerns about it. Uh, and it was very interesting to interact with that crowd because um, I, don't, I don't dislike Elon. Uh, I don't dislike, I don't even like dislike the Starlink network. I was just raising my concerns about this particular um, network and its impact on astronomy and uh, it was interesting to be uh, the target of some of his fanboy hate for a little while there. <laughs> it's interesting how people get so um, passionate about Elon Musk mm. in particular yeah, but also about any private sector involvement with space. I've run across it myself where I've raised concerns around things like Starlink. I've stayed out of that one on purpose, but <laughs> any sort of activity that's happening in space where you say, well, you know, hang on, let's consider another view. Why don't we think about what the cultural impacts might be? I was recently interviewed for an article that came out in the monthly a couple of days ago about mining on the moon. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of this article was to look at some other perspectives that might not normally get a run. Um, so often, Stories about asteroid mining or moon mining will talk about like the billions of dollars of profit involved and they'll talk about how the science isn't there yet, but there's investment and they'll talk about the private sector and that's kind of about it. So this article went deeper and spoke to a lot of experts in space law and space archaeology mm -hmm. and my own perspective was to do with the sociology of science and international relations in space and what moon mining might mean for that. Mm. Yeah, I think it's tough. I teach a course at the University of Sydney on science ethics. And sometimes it seems as though we, we want to say that scientific progress is always good and that trying to prevent science is a bad thing because science mm -hmm. is what mm -hmm. gives us things like you know, Panadol or no, um, it's immunization. A good point because the, the free market is a proven system and it's great that private companies are doing things and pushing things forward. And let's be honest, SpaceX is doing it a lot better and cheaper than NASA has been doing lately. Um, so we need that commercial incentive in the free market to push things. But that's not to say you can't still have some sort of regulation to make sure things don't go out of control. Mm. We need to make sure that um, there are some rules about what we do with these low orbits. Um, uh, you know, is it is it ethical for us to just let commercial interests run with the CRISPR gene editing software that could, uh, you know, for, for, for genes to edit the genome and to edit DNA to a point that could become rampant and have huge implications for humanity. Um, no, I certainly think there is, uh, I don't think it's, I, don't, I think it's fine to have the nuanced view that you can mm. have the free market and you can have a little bit of regulation and rules around that as well. And these things can, can coexist together. That's probably a problem with Twitter 
as a platform, <laughs> it tends to uh, pit views directly against each other and foster debate rather than discussion. The extreme I think. vocal ends of each each side of the debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah which I find <laughs> constantly um, distressing, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As someone who likes to have nuanced conversations and hopefully come to consensus on issues. It's very hard to come to consensus over Twitter, I've found. It does feel that way, doesn't it? Especially now, everyone has such strong views and everyone has a soapbox now that we have social media. And it Mm. feels like it feels it actually feels hard to be in the center sometimes. It feels like you're not um, in fact, you can be criticized now for being in the center because people think you're being a fence-sitter or not taking a stand. But I, I think it's probably good to look at both perspectives and it's not that hard to imagine that maybe both of you can be right. Wild thought indeed. <laughs> controversial, I know. <laughs> Very controversial. We can all be right. What? <laughs> so with Starlink, we're talking 12, was it 12,000 Starlink satellites eventually? Yeah. And that's just from one company Yes. And we know that other countries have plans to put up their own satellites mm-hmm. um, and form a web and a, a sort of a, a network around the earth, if you like. And it kind of, <laughs> I saw a visualization that you did, I think, where it looked a little bit like if you buy a, a melon or something in a shop and it's got that bit of netting around yeah. it. Yeah, it does look like that. We can talk about that from a scientific perspective or from an um, astronomy perspective of, of the people doing research. But I think there's a cultural perspective there too, which you touched on with your idea of, you know, anyone can go and buy a, a telescope and point it at the sky and look at what's happening. With more and more satellites, though, the, the view that we see from Earth will change and mm. it'll be, I guess it's the same with aeroplanes. I mean, it used to be that you could look at the night sky and it was just the same view that humans have seen mm-hmm. forever of the stars. Mm-hmm. But now there's there's aeroplanes and we've got various satellites and so on already there. Yeah. But thinking forward, it seems like it'll get to a point where it'll be impossible to look at the sky and not see something that humans have put there. Yeah, I think that that's the danger. And it is cultural. I mean, mm. there is something uh, that we will lose aesthetically and romantically about being able to look out after the Milky Way. And that, that would be a tragedy uh, in anyone's terms, but there is also the practical implication that there are there are projects looking for near Earth objects which may potentially wipe out life on this Earth, and um, we have many observatories who are actively tracking and detecting new near Earth objects every single night. Now, if you put up a, a constellation around the Earth and then suddenly they can't collect that sort of data anymore, or or they're their data collection is impeded, then we run the very real risk of not being able to detect the kind of asteroid that could wipe out life on this planet Mm. until it's too late. And that's not just um, pie-in-the-sky sort of stuff. There was one of these observatories doing these detections was able to detect one and predict that it would land over Africa Um, but the calculation and the time it took from their observation and doing it was about two hours. So they had about two hours uh, leeway before they knew it would come in. And and sure enough, it came in as a huge fireball. So that was the first time we were able to predict a near-Earth object straight from detection to to colliding with the Earth at the same time. But it's an example that shows that this is something that is a concern. So 
these networks will have an impact both on our romantic aesthetic view of the Milky Way and the actual functional detection of what we need in science. Let's talk a bit about Byron Bay. Yes. So I love this part of the world and I'm here visiting some family in this area. I've been coming up this way (laughs) since I was a kid. And as someone who spent most of my childhood growing up in a big city with big lights everywhere, being able to be somewhere that was so dark at night and see so many stars was quite magical. Yeah. Is that why you chose to come to Byron or, or is there something else about this area that you really love? Uh, you know what? It's just a happy coincidence that Byron happens to be a wonderful dark sky uh, site. I bought the telescope while I was living in Byron Bay and that's how I sort of started getting into it. I was just thrilled to realise that I'm living in a dark sky paradise and, and could run this sort of stuff from here. Uh, my observatory in the backyard here is um, uh, the easternmost observatory in Australia, uh, just technically. But it is just my little my little observatory in the backyard. Um, but ever since I discovered that this dark sky here was so lovely, I've been trying to kind of proselytise this to, to the world and, and share it with everyone and show people that uh, not only do we have a dark sky here, but we have this amazing side of the south celestial sphere mm. where we see the Milky Way far better than they do in the northern hemisphere. Um, so we're, we're a, you, you and I are a small fraction of the percentage of the population who can see the Milky Way in the first place but we see a better view from the southern hemisphere and we see a better view from away from the city lights so um, yeah I I would estimate that we're maybe one of one percent of people on this planet that that will ever get to see a view like what we see so it's it's worthwhile um, appreciating that. (laughs) For sure although historically the Byron Bay Mullumbimby zone has been an area for alternative thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, does Byron have fluoride in the water at the moment? I, I believe it's one of the only places that I don't think it does. Doesn't? Yeah. Um, although that might have changed recently. Sure. I can't, I can't. You don't quote me on that because I'm really not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right. There is a very um, almost anti-authoritarian, anti-science sort of entrenched population of people here who don't vaccinate their children, they're anti-fluoride, they're anti-5G, and, and all of these concerns are um, not based in any kind of scientific understanding, unfortunately. When I um, uh, started the Star Stuff Festival at the resort down here, uh, I applied for funding, a government-funded grant, to, to be able to promote the event. And when my funding was knocked back, I got in contact with them for feedback about my application and to try and find out why that funding was knocked back. And I was told over the phone, essentially they had misunderstood my entire application and thought that Star Stuff Festival of the Cosmos was going to be an astrology festival. (laughs) They had no idea that it was about science and astronomy and they just... The actual comments said they didn't think it would generate overnight visitors. Right. <laughs> they didn't think an astronomy festival would would generate overnight visitors, which is just crazy. So anyway, <laughs> the funding got knocked back. Um, but uh, I still think Byron Bay at the heart of it, it's such a beautiful geographic location with such mm. beautiful landscapes. And the people here, even if you don't agree with their take on science and, and their anti-science take their, their hearts are in the right place. You know, they are usually 
very environmental people, people who just want to live a simpler existence. Uh, they enjoy nature, they enjoy life, their, their hearts are in the right place, even perhaps if they don't understand the science behind vaccination. <laughs> but in some ways, I think that there's a responsibility on science and on governments to counter that narrative and to mm. communicate better. Well, I mean, clearly people... And not just here in Byron Bay and Mullumbimby, but mm. the eastern suburbs of Sydney yeah. also have a very low <laughs> vaccination rate. Yep. So clearly it's not just about socioeconomic status or mm. um, even political leanings. There's something more fundamental going on around a distrust of authority and a distrust in science and what, what um, science might tell us. Mm. And it's not hard to see why that might have happened when you consider some of the, I guess, negative things, if you, if you yeah. want to call it that, or, or yeah. um, unintended consequences that science or scientific developments have had. I mean, mm. this, the same technology that took us to the moon 50 years ago was also part of the thing that gave us more effective missiles and so on that have been used to kill people. Yeah. So that's a good point. So I think, um, what are your thoughts on that as someone who lives here? Do you think that this is something that can be countered through more education or do you think there's something more that has to happen, something a bit deeper that has to be addressed? Yeah, I think it's part of a bigger problem because there is, I, I remember growing up and, and even the generation before me had this huge respect for scientists. Uh, you know, kids literally wanted to grow up to be engineers or to be astronauts and, and mm. things like that. And that's slowly been eroded away. And now people have this mistrust of uh, Big Farm or they have mistrust uh, of, of the way our food's being prepared. But in, in actuality, all the evidence shows us that we do live in a very healthy society. We are living longer. Things are better than they were before. Um, but perhaps perhaps it's a communication issue, like you said, with the government. Uh, then again, there are governments who don't believe the science. You know, mm. We have the environmental scientists who are giving them the data, giving them the research, and the government doesn't trust them either. Right. And this is all tied up with the um, evil scientist trope as well. So somewhere along the line, we've gone from the, being an aspirational thing like astronauts and engineers to the evil scientist trope where uh, these scientists are just... Um, clutching money in the back room as the big farmer gives them, you know, incentives to, yeah. to to do something nefarious with the research. But you're right, mistakes have been made. There have been um, scientific accidents along the way. There have been times where science hasn't really been held to account for for what it's wrought. But um, you know, science is a is a process, and there are still people behind that process, and mm. there there is corruption, and there is politics, and there's all sorts of stuff. So. I think that's not science fault. At the end of the day, it's just people's fault. But culturally, there is there is an issue, and like you say, it doesn't it crosses um, socio political and socio economic boundaries as well. So, I'd like to see the faith in science restored generally, and that can only happen uh, when science solves our problems. And science can't solve our problems until politicians actually start listening to the scientists. I'm interested that you picked the word faith, which would generally be a fairly non-scientific word. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is it that made you choose the word faith there, do you think? Oh, that's just a turn of phrase. I was 
it was wasn't uh, there wasn't something deeper mm. <laughs> behind the choice, choice but it's funny that that is what we think about isn't it but we think it about having faith in science because not everyone can have a degree in something at some point you have to um, put your faith in the science but the science has to prove itself first whereas um, faith in a religious sense is has to be it has to be blind faith you have to throw your faith at something mm. proven or not it doesn't have to prove itself to be religious faith Science can prove itself, and when it does prove itself, you can have faith in it. There's some, if, if people are interested in this idea of doubt in science, there's some great work that's been done by Naomi Oreskes about agnotology, which is a fancy way of saying the science of doubt, I suppose, or the mm-hmm. study of doubt. Mm-hmm. And she, she generally puts this rising doubt in science back to the smoking advertisements um, and the kind of the way that money and think tanks were put behind creating an artificial doubt in the science that smoking caused cancer. True. She thinks that the way that science was used for commercial ends and in some ways that scientists, individual scientists or symbols to do with science, like the man in the white coat, were weaponized during that period mm. has led to people feeling that there's more of a debate there than there is, or perhaps that they're not always hearing the truth. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to see why that might be the case. But when we're faced with bigger issues like climate change, it, it does, as you say, lead to problems when your own government is saying, well, I don't know if I trust the science on this. And, yeah. and again, it's that thing of trusting <laughs> the science. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was this yeah. idea in the 90s when the internet was rolling out that, Finally, uh, we are all going to have access to information. And when we all have access to information, uh, there won't be any places for religions and cults and weird conspiracy theories to hide anymore because suddenly everyone will have access. And that hasn't turned out to be true. Now we're seeing this kind of uh, reaction where actually the internet has been a place for all sorts of horrible things to flourish, like cults and religions and mm. conspiracy theories and, and white supremacist groups or whatever. So uh, just having the access to information hasn't been enough for people to have a, an epistemological framework to build on to know how they know what they know. Um, yes, and sometimes you've got situations where people are actively thwarting your um, desires to do that through fake news or through yes. Twitter bots or so on that are trying actively to, yeah. Yeah, to undermine your sense of what is true and what is not true. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it gives, uh, it gives you this sense that you just can't trust things or that you can't rely on anything really, mm-hmm. which is a sad thing to come to when you've got people working in scientific fields jumping up and down and saying, no, this is real. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yet that comes at a time where there's a kind of apathy towards facts, if you can call them facts. <laughs> I'm very nervous about using the word facts. As someone who studies um, the history and philosophy well, of science, science, I, I get it. Yeah. Perhaps educationally it would be nice uh, if children were given some sort of framework for how to test sources and why to trust some sources over other sources and when those sources can be called into question as well Mm. just because it's a scientific paper doesn't make it flawless you know and so yeah we have to be able to look at methodology we have to be able to look at how we understand data and 
Um, I guess that's something at least I wasn't taught at school. We were just taught subjects. We weren't mm. taught when we should be able to question those subjects or the framework for understanding what's real about them or not. Mm. You know, there were rules that I learned in maths class, which have since been thrown out. <laughs> and then a new, new, um, right. Or models of atoms and things that yeah. I was taught in science class that even mm. when I was being taught them, um, I had, uh, well, my older brother is a physicist. And mm. so I had his friends over and I was doing my science homework and they were like, well, that's wrong. Why are you doing that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's just like, and it's easy to think about yeah. atoms as these little planets with moons going around them because of the pictures that we saw in, in science class. And, and, and really, they don't work like that at all. They're not like the, the, the orbits don't go around in a circle. They're completely uncertain, you know. Mm. So, um, and, and then you get into quantum stuff and it becomes all very confusing and our sense of reality just is gone. Uh, yeah. Epistemology uh, yeah. is <laughs> epistemology is a big one. It's probably a little bit out of the scope of this podcast. Oh, not at all. Nothing's out of scope. I had a great conversation over some beers the other week um, when I was in Italy for the Antarctic Astrophysics and Astronomy Conference um, with the Scientific Committee for Antarctic Research. And I had a fabulous conversation over beers with a couple of people from um, different countries talking about photon entanglement. So the idea being that you can sort of split a photon and they're entangled in such a way that if you do something to one side, the same thing happens to the other side. Yeah. It's spooky stuff it and it's kind spooky. of at the edges yeah. of our understanding. <laughs> and I was, I really enjoyed this conversation um, as someone who, I, I'm not a physicist myself, but who kind of interacts with that community quite a lot. Mm. It was really nice to see these top scientists from different countries sitting over a beer <laughs> and trying to figure it out and, and talking about um, how oh, it worked and, and so yeah. on. And uh, <laughs> there was a guy from China, um, a very senior physicist from China there, who was trying to explain it and understand it in terms of pairs of shoes. <laughs> so his idea was that if you were blindfolded and wearing mittens and you sent you had boxes of shoes and you just randomly picked a shoe out and posted it to someone else in a particular mm -hmm. order, then naturally if they then opened their box and looked at what shoe they had, they'd know what shoe you had. And if they'd received them all in order, you could have some sort of information Start transfer, transmitted. Yeah, um, right. which I thought was a great <laughs> way of explaining it. And, but, but that's the kind of thing that I think I'm very privileged to have access to mm. because I operate um, within universities and go to these conferences, I get to see scientists, mm. really good scientists, yeah. having arguments and debates and trying to figure things out. And I get to see the uncertainty that they have. But weirdly enough, if I'm watching TV and I see an ad for toothpaste or something, I mm. see, you know, a man or a woman, more often a woman these days, yeah. um, in a white coat with a beaker full of coloured liquid, <laughs> telling me that something is scientifically proven yeah, and I'm meant to just take that on face value. Mm -hmm, and I, mm -hmm. I guess it's kind of cheapened to the brand. Whereas I think if people had access to the debate and the level of debate that happens at that, that senior level more yeah. often, maybe it's easier to trust something if you can see the uncertainty within it. I think so. Yeah. Which is funny to think about considering the quantum stuff and quantum computing is all about uncertainty. It's no longer about on and off. 
it's about a 95% certainty based on a 5% uncertainty. So it's true that the world isn't as, as black and white as we like to think it is. And um, yeah, I don't know what the answer is for for it other than just I still think education is mm. the key. I think the more educated a society is, the the better we will become culturally and science is is one of the cornerstones for that definitely yeah yeah absolutely um and you've you've got kids at school here in byron (laughs) yeah i do it's um it's so nice to to be a dad and to have these two little boys who uh for the moment until they become teenagers they think i'm cool (laughs) and and they think all the science stuff i do is cool um you know i'll make thermite with um with my little seven-year-old and, and we'll... Sorry, what, you'll make thermite with the, your seven-year-old? Yeah, there is a video on YouTube, actually, of, of him explaining how to make thermite and, and showing... Fabulous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he, so he has this science education and sure enough, his, his latest report card said he got the, the best marks in science, so... Congratulations. <laughs> so all, all of my efforts making explosives in the backyard were not in vain. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Dylan. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about? I, I did want to know, because yeah. you're studying um, sort of philosophy of science and history and philosophy of science with this idea of space diplomacy, um, that's a position that doesn't exist yet. Sure. Which is an interesting um, yeah. way to uh, align your career. And I get that because when I went to school, you know, the internet wasn't a thing. And now my whole career is based around the internet and the internet publications and servers and hosting so the job that I eventually ended up going for didn't exist when I uh, went to school or university even Um, but I wonder do you think in the future that that space diplomat role is one that you go towards through academia or is it something that will go is one you go towards through politics will you have to be a politician who is then appointed into that diplomatic post at some point so you represent a constituency first before you then get given this plum position in in diplomacy that's a that's a really good question uh the answer to that is i don't know so um yeah when i finished school i had no idea that this is what i wanted to do i went to university because that's what one did and i studied various different things and i did lots of musicals and i had a lot of fun at university I ended up going and working in finance for a while. Um, so I was an investment banker and wow. in my head I thought, okay, well, this is a great career. Um, I was interested in it. I thought this is somewhere where, weirdly enough, I thought it was somewhere where I could do good for the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I, I did actually think that. And I still think that um, a lot of the guys and women that I worked with were and are very moral people. Um, mm. There's a few you know, a few bad ones who give everyone a bad name. Sure. And I guess the same goes for science or anything else. Anyway, yeah. But when I left that, I left it with a very vague ambition of doing something to do with cooperation in space. Mm. And my stated goal when my parents asked me what I thought I might do and why was that I wanted to do something that would help us blow each other up less. And that's still my goal. So that's a a great mission statement. Yeah, and I kind of I kind of go by that. So in terms of the methodology to get there, it's funny because historically the the path would have been to apply to DFAT 
Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. uh, the Department for Foreign Affairs and Trade and become a career diplomat and Mm -hmm. then kind of specialize from there. But I thought, well, we don't live in that world anymore. People are disrupting Mm -hmm. industries all over the place. I have girls I went to school with who have made livings for themselves by posting pictures on Instagram of it's them true. It's, posing it's the fruit. Now. I it, mean, you, you become famous first and then you write the book, it's yeah. not the other way around. Something I really battle with is that imposter syndrome of thinking, okay, yes, I'm studying this stuff. Yes, I think deeply about it. Yes, I have thoughts and I've got experience and I've read probably more than most people on mm. some of these topics, not all of them. But at what point do I become someone who knows what I'm talking about? At what point... Am I senior enough or experienced enough Mm -hmm. or whatever enough to do X, Y, Z? I don't know the answer. I'm just kind of following my nose. I think think we all have that feeling. But my view is I would like to do what I find interesting and what I think is within my nihilist worldview, (laughs) a good purpose for life and see where I go. But no, I don't know. I think PhD is step one and then... um, We'll see where we go from there. Very cool. If you've got any ideas, throw them my way. And if anyone actually has any ideas about how one goes about doing this, please send them through. (laughs) I think it's great the the way you're going about it because you're sort of immersing yourself in the whole culture of it and meeting people and doing the academia as well. So but I I don't think you could do anything differently, really. (laughs) The one thing that worries me is going back to that uncertainty principle. Mm is when you're studying as a sociologist, when you're studying a community of people and how they operate, once you involve yourself in that community, you're disturbing it. Yeah. And if you think about trying to study um, particle physics and the uncertainty principle with... Once you've observed it, you've Once you've observed it, you've changed it. Yeah. So um, that's the only thing that worries me. True. Yeah, Hunter S. Thompson was the gonzo journalist inserting himself into the story and... What you described sounds like gonzo academia. Gonzo academia. I'll have to write that one down. There you go. That's my justification. I'm just a gonzo academic. (laughs) Very good. Well, on that note, we might finish up, but thank you so much. Oh, if people want to find you, what are your Twitter handles? What are your YouTube Uh, videos? You can find me on youtube.com forward slash earthmuffin. That's E-R-F-M-U-F-N. And uh, if you just Google Dylan O'Donnell, I've worked very hard to get my Google ranking up over the years, so <laughs> you should be fine there. So we'll find you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Space Junk. If you'd like to get in touch or you have any questions or comments about anything in this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at handmer. That's A for Annie, H-A-N-D-M-E-R. Thanks for listening. Oh
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.